0: Welcome back to another episode of Public Problems. Once again, I'm with a number of Bush School students who have done some interesting work for a course project. They spent the first half of their semester in one of their first courses working on their master's in public service and administration, picking a public problem or a policy area that they really cared about or that they thought was important. Um, But before we get into the details of the report, I'd like to give the students an opportunity to introduce themselves.
1: Hi, I'm Samantha DeVellas.
2: I'm Katie
0: Ott. I'm Zane Dupree. I'm Dohan Kim. And
2: I'm Brittany Winters.
0: All right. Um, So thank you uh, for your work. Thanks for agreeing to have this conversation with me. I'm really excited to do this and then excited to put it out there in general for other people to hear. So thanks again for that. Um, Your report make sure I get it right, is titled The Student Debt Crisis. So tell me um, what, of all the problems in the world, why did you pick this one? Why was it particularly important to you other than because you're students?
3: was uh, that did I, did I still your answer? Uh, <laughs> one of the parts. Oh, okay. Uh, so, of course, everyone here is students, but the more we thought about this, the more we looked into it, uh, this is seeping into every part of society, Uh, Right now, the Fed just released uh, their quarterly report. Uh, The entire student uh, debt uh, is equal to uh, $1.53 trillion, uh, which is absolutely enormous. It puts it uh, a little bit lower than the mortgage, uh, obviously uh, a huge one. So uh, the more we looked at this and just like it's such a topical issue, uh, just at the beginning of this week, I had to include another part of my. Introduction The fact that Betsy DeVos, the current sitting uh, education secretary, lost a lawsuit to 18 states uh, because she uh, was uh, failing to implement Obama era regulation that would uh, help uh, students who were affected by for profit universities closing. Uh, so it's just incredibly topical, and uh, it is just a huge part of what uh, America is currently facing. Yeah,
0: I think. Uh... I'm not going to remember the details, but uh, Betsy DeVos has come up a number of times recently um, since she was appointed um, about issues related to student debt and mm-hmm. predatory lending. So this has been controversial for some time during her tenure, yeah, I think. Absolutely.
3: It's been a big thing since the 2016 campaign when Donald Trump uh, was uh, facing a class action lawsuit by people who had attended his university uh, and basically been cheated out of an education were faced with massive loans. Uh, which is why she was basically delaying this, uh, because this would help people who had been basically uh, gone to a fraudulent university.
0: Why does, as you referenced this in your report, why does student debt persist? Why is this something, this isn't a new problem, right? And so why is this a challenge that we're continually facing?
2: Yeah, so we kind of came to, I guess, three scenarios that, why it persists. One Higher education is just so much more expensive now than ever before. It's increasing way faster than inflation is. And also political philosophies with the changing of presidents every four to eight years. Whoever's in office, it tends to reflect their economic policy, whether they're supporting these student loans and supporting um, how much they're supporting education. As well as students are far unprepared to make such a large financial decision, going straight into college, whether that's going into say, a four-year, two-year university, or even just a vocational trade program. So those were the three main reasons we talked about. Talking about tuition and fees, uh, tuition hasn't been increasing um, as fast if you look at just tuition by itself, so that's why we included fees and perhaps room and board in that as well, because where um, the government has put pressure on universities to uh, stop increasing tuition. But they just find other ways to charge their students with fees and room and board, whether that's parking passes or, um, you have a, your first year fee and things like that. And, um, this has not been equally matched within the federal government too. So tuition's increasing, fees are increasing, but not necessarily loans and grants.
0: Yeah. That's one of the, uh, another piece of information that, uh, I wasn't aware of going through school, but have become more kind of attuned to is this attempt to slow tuition in a lot of states has just resulted in states just cranking up the fees. So where I grew up in Georgia, the classic example of this was we had the Hope Scholarship, and that covered uh, your tuition, but it didn't cover the fees. And so to keep the spending down on the Hope Scholarship and the overall amount of money that was going out in tuition, they just raised fees and kind of passed it on to the students that way. There's clearly, I think, been a trend of this all over the country for for universities. Um, okay, so um, cost is a problem in the fact that the overall cost of tuition, cost of attending universities is going up, and students need to be able to pay for that and can't. It remains kind of a political football going back and forth. And then the third thing was...
2: The students are unprepared.
0: Students are unprepared to make these decisions, which makes sense i took out a lot of loans and i'm not sure i knew what i was getting into right and so part of this is an education piece as the students are making decisions about whether or not what's the what's the benefit of college as a, as a as one piece but really understanding how interest works and how this stuff is going to stay with them because debt affects you in some ways and i can attest to that i was being out of school for five years after being in school for nine years I had a decent amount of debt, even though my programs were funded, and as someone who's having to then make decisions about what to do with his life, and make decisions about what types of jobs to take, and what types of activities to be a part of, the debt hangs over my head at all times when I'm thinking about what my choices are, and so it kind of constrains them in that way. Um, what did, uh, in your report, you talk about why student debt matters, so what did, what did you find the reasons why it matters?
4: Well, we identified several different stakeholders, and um, so any student that's involved with uh, post-secondary education, whether current or former, have a stake in what happens with student debt. So for current students, obviously, they have to take out loans if they can't pay for it, and for former students, when they complete their degree or if they stop going altogether, they still have to pay off um, their student loans, and they have to pay attention to the changing laws and interest rates so that they don't default on their loans. Um, another key stakeholder are parents. Although some students are independent from their parents, a lot of the times when you look for loans, you, you need someone to co-sign or be a guarantor, and oftentimes those are your parents. And uh, So they have an active role in determining like, whether or not you should pay off those loans mm-hmm. or like how, how you should do it and how, how you should go about that. Another key stakeholder uh, are members of Congress, because they're constantly concerned about getting reelected. So they want to look responsive to their constituents by supporting student loan reform, uh, especially as student debt increases. Like They need to address this, because it's a key issue. And uh, the president is also involved. There are actually two main interests. So first, maintaining competitiveness in the international stage for STEM ever since the Cold War era. Um, they started increasing um, the loans that they give to the students so that they can promote more people to go into uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematic fields uh, to be more competitive in a global scale. Also, it's another key issue for re-election and for having high poll ratings. So usually, it's if you have more higher education, then that's tied with higher poll ratings. Another key uh, stakeholder are just American taxpayers, because the rising debt has surpassed credit card and automotive debt, uh, and <laughs> colleges and universities are also involved because maintaining student populations depends on their accessibility and their the student's ability to pay for the education. And Department of Education is also involved because they're responsible for facilitating the loan program on behalf of the government. and uh, private lenders are also have a vested interest obviously they, they make profits off their loans and there's a direct trade-off between federal and private lenders so there's a very combative relationship uh, between the two so when the federal government uh, is more restrictive on their qualifications or the uh, requirements that you need for student loans then private lenders can step in and kind of predators in, in that sense that make more money off uh, students and uh, finally future employers are also involved because some of them are, are responsible or they take a role in paying off some of their the loans uh, for their employees and also for students they have to look for employers that will help them address the debt because it like you said it looms over them
0: yeah there's, um, there's a lot of there that you covered um, and there's two pieces of it I just want to comment on because I think they are they're interesting and, and one is this the traditional role that universities have played in trying to keep kind of competitive advantage by bringing in the best and brightest students from all over the world um, and this has been um, one of my own uh, frustrations to watch play out under the current administration is the way that immigration is being talked about Um, we've had and the way in which it's funded has had noticeably chilling effects on the best and brightest students wanting to come to U.S. universities, which is immensely frustrating uh, and against our own national interest in trying to have the best and brightest students come uh, to the U.S. The second piece that I think is interesting to kind of have an honest reflection on universities is they're not uh, innocent in this, right? So universities and programs often are funded in part by the amount of students they have. And so it's really in their incentives to get as many students in the doors as possible. And so having honest conversations with students about, hey, I'm not sure this is a good loan situation for you as kind of a resource, they have really perverse incentives there, right? Because they're trying to keep their student numbers up. So these are just a couple of the the nuances and the complications of the stakeholders that you mentioned. I mean, I think it's a really... Uh, it creates a situation where um, everyone's kind of on board with selling the loans to the students and the people who are really kind of bearing the brunt of that are the students. Um, So that's a a nice overview of the, of the stakeholders. So um, how, uh, how does this play out? I suppose in the sense that students have a couple of options and they can either do federal or private. Is there a lot of oversight in who gets the loans? What's for people who haven't been in school and aren't kind of currently taking out these loans? Did you look into or do you remember or know kind of what the process is for getting these loans? I mean, is it pretty rigorous and intensive? Do you have to go through training and counseling to get these loans? Or is it more just straight up based on your income? How are these? How do students get these loans? Yeah.
2: So, to um, speak on the little bit that I can talk about for your question, um, the federal system today, while there's many different federal loans, they kind of fall into like four categories, which are subsidized and unsubsidized separate loans. The difference between that, subsidized means um, you have to show a financial need. You have to show that you need this help to go to school, which is also assisted by the university. So the university will also tell with your FAFSA form that um, we're not gonna supply them with enough money. Um, They may may, like give a recommendation, uh, (laughs) they need this much more money and you may or may not get that. Unsubsidized, you don't have to show any financial, um, any financial need to get an unsubsidized loan. Um, We also have the PLUS program. PLUS program allows parents, uh, family members to take out loans on behalf of students as well as the Perkins loan program. So uh, for all of these, uh, there is the FAFSA form, which everyone has to fill out um, before attending um, university, and it's offered to anyone um, four-year, two-year, as well as trade and vocational programs.
0: So the FAFSA, the main thing it's taking into account is financial need based Mm -hmm. on your income? Based on the
2: last fiscal year.
0: Okay. What are other features before we – I really want to talk about um, how to reform this system and what you came up with that. But are there other key features of the current setup and the stakeholders and why this is persisting that we're missing that I'm not stumbling across?
5: We kind of go into some of those when we're talking about our reforms of like ways of reforming um, both the current system. We focused mostly on the federal loan system. We didn't really look at private loans too much because we figured um, the government, at the very least, has a lot of control over how they give out loans. And private funding is, or private loans are generally looked at as the last resort for funding for students because they have a lot of opportunities to be predatory. So um, the majority of like college websites, the FAFSA website, college board all suggest look for grants first and scholarships and then take federal loans second as the thing to cover the rest of your costs and only if absolutely necessary to take out private loans. So we focused on the federal system, Mm -hmm. but also our second kind of batch of solutions and reforms were geared towards lessening the general demand for student loans. So I don't know if we want to go into
2: that now or save that for after. Go ahead. I'll just add a point on to Brittany's um, point about private versus federal. Um, There's studies show that most of student loans are owed to the federal government. Uh, There's like about a ratio of like 8 to 1 or 9 to 1 of loans are owed to federal versus private.
0: So the big player in the room is really the federal government. Yes, and
2: that's actually because they have lower
0: interest Mm rates. Okay, well, let's jump right into how to reform this then, if that's where we kind of wrestle with some of the issues uh, in some more detail. So how do we go about reforming the system? What did you come up with, and how does the solutions that you have address the problems that are present?
1: Okay, so as far as reformation, we kind of took this in two different angles. So I kind of addressed reformation within the current system, so this kind of mainly focused on improvements on the systems that are already in place. So these are like kind of more moderate solutions. Okay. And then Brittany went into like more holistically kind of reforming the system as a whole, I would say. Okay. So um, it was kind of interesting because I looked at um, repayment plans and I thought this was going to be like a little blip in my research and I would continue on to other things. But it brought up so much that I mainly focused on repayment plans because uh-huh. um, that directly affects whether a student is going to take out the loan. And um, so that's kind of mainly what I focused on. So there's, you know, standard repayment plans. You take out a loan, obviously you have to pay it back. So there's different ones like depending on income or sometimes there's a standard repayment plan. You just have to split it up so you can pay it off within 10 years. That usually doesn't happen, Mm -hmm. takes longer than that. Um, So those are kind of like the standard repayment plans that are options and um, the ones that I got that I really focused on that kind of shocked me were these um, loan forgiveness programs. So these are kind of advertised as viable options for students to help them alleviate some of the debt that they accumulated. And basically all they are is they're job related loan forgiveness programs. And if you work in a certain field, um, there's two available through the Department of Education. But if you work in a certain field, they will pay off usually the like some sort of remaining balance on your debt. So mm-hmm. Paying people for services, basically, is what it is. Um, so there are two that they currently offer, just within the public, or sorry, the Department of Education, is the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program and the Teacher Loan Forgiveness Program, which you've probably already kind of heard of. Especially the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, it's been in the news like 2017, 2018 because of the data that release that was just released on it. Um, Teacher Loan Forgiveness has been around for a while. There's been like reform changes adding, dropping of like a variation of that forgiveness program. Um, so basically I looked at what made this program just ineffective. So the data that was just released, I think it was in 20, 2018. So this program only went into effect in 2017. So we're kind of just seeing the effects of it right now because one of the qualifications is 120 qualifying payments. So 120 monthly payments, which kind of equates to about 10 years, mm-hmm. which is why we're basically just seeing the effects now. So we're seeing that out of 32,000, like 32,600 applicants that applied, only 96, is that what it is? Sorry, 289 were approved. So that means there was a 99% um, rate of unacceptance. So only 1% were actually accepted. They did their 10 years or more of service and they received loan forgiveness on their remaining balance, which is obviously pretty shocking. Mm -hmm.
0: Um,
1: so did you
0: see why? I mean, what's the,
1: yeah. So the big portion of applicants that uh, were not approved was because they did not meet program requirements. So of 32,000, that was about 20,000. So that's the majority. And the uh, the rest of applicants were denied due to mission, missing information. Okay. So that could, like the missing information can kind of easily be remedied, I mm-hmm. would think. Um, but again, the big portion of people did not meet program requirements. And um, just kind of looking at the requirements, they're really stringent. You have to make, again, 120 payments. They have to be on time. They don't necessarily have to be consecutive. Um, but um, there's also like qualifying when they say public service, it's like um, 501c3s, so nonprofits. Also, any sort of like government organization, federal, state, local. Um,
0: I believe there's some income caps on it as well. But I'm not sure.
1: That was the thing that got a lot of people. So there has to be. Um, so obviously, while you're in the job, you still have to be paying these loans, right? Mm-hmm. You're paying the loans because they're only forgiving any remaining balance after 10 years. Um, so people, they have, you have to register for a qualified repayment plan. And this was not, I guess, broadly advertised. Just kind of looking at some of the cases of real-life people that this happened to, they have, um, so loan, loan servicers are basically like a company that's contracted by the Department of Education to kind of give information to help people with, like, repayment. They kind of misled a lot of people, essentially, is what happened. There was a lot of misinformation. Um, people were not keeping up with... Them, like yearly requirement, sort of so it just was really confusing and
0: mm-hmm. a lot of
1: people who again did 120 qualifying payments I mean worked for 10 years
0: so didn't get it yeah
1: I'm not gonna get it um which is pretty insane so I kind of focused on improvements to that job um job related loan forgiveness programs and like some of them are relatively simple you know mm-hmm. to be completely honest and it's just like administrative type of issues with miscommunication and uh, missing information that could easily be remedied. So kind of just looking at, um, what can be done about that. So one of the things <laughs> that I recommended, oh, also another thing about these programs, Congress controls them, so they can change it anytime. Okay. They can change qualifications anytime. They can end the program anytime. So you could be, um, six years into like mm-hmm. saying, I, yeah, mm-hmm. like I wanted to do this job, not, you know, Hopefully it's not the main reason you're doing it, but it is one of the big reasons Mm -hmm. why. Um, And they could change it and there's nothing you can really do about that. So that's another factor, which is actually something being considered right now. The Trump administration is considering completely eliminating that program probably because it's not working very well, Um, but also because it's kind of expensive. Mm -hmm. But um, so yeah, just some of the things I focused on improving would be like a yearly eligibility assessment. So um, every year kind of checking back in to make sure you meet those qualifications. You're talking to a loan servicer that's actually knowledgeable. I mean, people trust these loan servicers to give them accurate information. That's an easy fix. Like they need to know the requirements. Mm -hmm. So um, just being able to have feedback about that. Also mentioned like partial loan forgiveness. So these you can only apply for after services have commenced. I didn't really mention the teacher one, but um, the teacher loan forgiveness program is five years so you work 5 years and then you can apply and maybe you get it right. So just like maybe getting partial loan forgiveness for that and then just like better incentives essentially like for the teacher one especially. I think the loan forgiveness <laughs> so it's either it's a bit odd, but it's either 17,500 you get or 5,000. And essentially stem teachers get 17,500. Everybody else gets 5,000. Um but 5000 is not a lot mm-hmm. in consideration with how much the amount of loan debt that people are currently in. So just kind of increasing those incentives, because this is the government's way of trying to recruit and retain professions that are high need. So those public service positions, teacher positions. Um, I also discussed just like other Departments within the government not Department of Education that kind of offer similar things are usually better They usually pay yearly, so they're helping the person while they're actually in the job instead of after they're done They pay more so like other departments like Department of Homeland Security um, There's a lot of just like other government agencies that offer similar programs, but they're they're better Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I discussed just improvements within that system.
0: It's kind of interesting that it's so easy to get the loans through FAFSA, and we have ways of making it really easy to get the money, but then the repayment plans are made kind of administratively challenging or administratively difficult. Um, and so they're not errors in the same way. They're kind of one is encouraging you to take out the money, and the other is making it harder for you to get uh, to, to get reprieve from some of it. And so... It's kind of interesting, just from administrative tools, how different it is to apply for these rep- repayment plans compared to how easy it is to get the money. It's kind um, of like the Chinese, like finger Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Trying to get you in there and get you stuck. Um. Okay. Thank, thanks.
5: Thanks. Uh, well, um, tacking onto that, one of the things that you didn't mention, you kind of touched on it, but like also in Sam's section, she mentioned like having contracts set up for these programs with uh-huh. static terms and conditions where you basically enter into a contract for it where you make your, if you make all of your qualifying payments and you're under the right um, repayment program, then the federal government is required to pay you back as a contractual obligation to say, I completed all of these requirements and met all the qualifications, now you have to forgive my remaining loan balance because like she mentioned before, if they can change it halfway through, if you're in your ninth year and then all of a sudden they cut the program you did all of that work and made all of those payments hoping that you would get this uh, however much the rest of your loan is forgiven and all of a sudden you are stuck still trying to pay all of that back and people could be banking on this for something and maybe taking out other loans to help shift kind of their expected income and then it's it's just not working out. So some kind of contractual system that would lock both parties into the requirements.
1: Also one thing that's Kind of encouraging. Um, so, I mentioned that the data that came out is obviously, you know, very bleak outlook on the effectiveness of the program and the reasons why. So, it seems like um, the government is kind of acknowledging that they made some mistakes because, um, so again, the administration wants to, is leaning towards getting rid of the program, but they also just dedicated more funding. So, they just allocated some more funding for the public service loan forgiveness program for people who were um, not approved. Who were under like a a technical difficulty, like a different repayment program than they were mm-hmm. supposed to. So they just did that recently, where they have this like temporary thing for people to reapply because they kind of realized um, some of the, their faults. So that's
0: kind of encouraging. Yeah, maybe protect them against like just straight up lawsuits. <laughs> uh, I mean, one uh, percent <laughs> acceptance is really. That's I mean, it, it shows a pretty clear uh, intent, I think, to make sure to keep those things low. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, well, how do we fare in related systems and the overall demand? What does this picture look like?
5: Sure, one of the biggest things that needs to improve is general financial education. People, a lot of people, leave high school and go into college. That's like you're a freshman in college. You just turned eighteen. You have to make these massive financial decisions that you're probably not prepared for. So um, there's a nice graphic in our report about like how well the states do teaching financial literacy, and most of them are very poor, especially (laughs) (laughs) um, depending on if the majority of the time financial information is not a part of the curriculums in schools. Um, There was research by the Georgetown University Center on Education in the Workforce that says that low-income students especially would benefit a lot from some form of financial education as early as middle school. Talking about budgeting, planning your expenses, just understanding how finances work in the real world. So one of our suggestions would be to, you know, um, have some kind of like financial training module, at least on the general federal loan program requirements, maybe an attachment to the FAFSA <laughs> when you're filling it out, have to go through like a little 20 to 30 minute training, like video on exactly how these things work and talking about all the different repayment programs and the different options you have, the different types of loans that you can take out and other routes, just so people will have like this the general information when they're going into it, because a lot of that information is out there. It's on the FAFSA website, and it's not too hard to find. But people aren't necessarily going to be proactive in doing it unless you make it a requirement in the process. Mm-hmm. So if you just added that extra step, it would probably help a lot of people make better decisions and plan for their future a lot more consistently. Um, and
0: the good thing about that one, that could just be an administrative fix. Mm-hmm. Like some, I mean just have to be added as a requirement it doesn't require a whole lot of new startup or challenges or even really resources it would just have to be part of the mm-hmm. of the process
5: yeah they have a couple of really useful YouTube videos connected in the FAFSA website so if they just put it as like when you're clicking through the application it plays this video and you can't skip it then you know mm-hmm. at least you, you tried to help people understand better mm-hmm. but we kind of uh, compared it to like a lot of universities have little interactive training modules that can take up to a couple hours On sexual assault prevention and drug and alcohol abuse so why not have something for financial literacy Mm -hmm. that has a similar thing talking about you know loan consolidation deferment forgiveness programs all those things um and you could have like follow-up trainings throughout uh so the other ways of maybe lessening the general demand for student loans was looking at loan alternatives and supplements so the grant program is a a fairly large program there are um a lot of Pell Grant recipients, which is the most common form, that do you, you uh, apply for these grants because they don't have to pay them back, so that's definitely a better alternative than loans if you can get them. They're designed mainly to be targeted for people with household incomes of less than 50000 but because there is so much demand for them with the high cost of college, the average requirement is actually you have to be less than $20,000 of household income. So even the people that is targeted to surveying, the majority of them are not going to be able to get these loans or mm-hmm. get these grants, and they're forced to resort to loans or some other form. And then there are a couple of other additional programs that can help you get extra money as well, which is nice. Um, but so the Pell Grant averages roughly 5500 per year, which is not necessarily a lot. If you go to a private institution, you might be paying $60,000 a year for college. Pell Grant's not going to help you a whole lot. There are a couple of additional grants um, that can tack on extra money for that, but you have to already be a Pell Grant recipient in order to get most of them. So still, it is definitely targeting the lowest-income students, which is extremely helpful for equity, but there's a large portion of low-income and middle-income students that would greatly benefit from these types of things that are forced to go to loans directly because they don't qualify. Mm -hmm. Um, So another option would be maybe like, work-based grants, so um, a lot of students, about 70% of college students have some form of employment during college. They're choosing to work and go to school at the same time, either to make the payments um, directly or just in preparation for having to start making loan payments as soon as they graduate. If they don't have a high enough paying job when their grace period runs out, then they need to have some kind of savings to help support that, and there was some research showing that um, just working 15 hours a week or more uh, will shift most people's grade point averages, both low income and high income students will start dropping. They'll go from A's and B's to C's and D's. There's a distinct um, effect on grade point averages. If you work more than 15 hours, which really isn't that much if you're trying to come up with a couple thousand dollars a year or uh, every semester in order to pay for your tuition and fees. Um, so another way of like decreasing this kind of demand for loans would be educational alternatives. So cost of college is really expensive. Maybe promoting vocational programs and trade schools would be really helpful because uh, it was mentioned in our history section that we didn't really go over, but there's been a big push for higher education in the last few decades of pushing everyone towards college and saying college is the best thing that you can do. If you want a good career, you have to go to college. If you want to make money, have to go to college. And that's not necessarily true. Sometimes going to college, if you are unprepared for it, it's just not geared towards your skill set. If you are, like, better at working with your hands than, like, reading something out of a book, then college could just put you in a large amount of debt and give you a degree that you didn't really need when you could have gone to a vocational school and had a very good career and made good money with a lot less debt. A lot of programs are only two years, even, to get a trade school certified professional. Well, um, program is, is two years and it's only about 11,000, or the difference in income averages about $11,000 a year, but you don't have necessarily all of those loans that you have to pay back. So mm-hmm. maybe even that income disparity between the professions is not as big of a deal to you because mm-hmm. you can still support yourself very well. Um, so as far as institutional reforms, we mentioned before that while tuition hasn't risen a whole lot, fees certainly have. So, one simple reform would be um, maybe not imposing fee caps, like complete fee caps. Like, um, there are some sort of tuition caps, but maybe have a function of tuition sort of cap for fees. I'm saying, like, at the very least, you can't have fees that are in excess of 100% of your tuition cost. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's
5: a bit excessive. Seems like a fair
0: starting point. Yeah.
5: And then you can adjust that, however, and then... Yeah, so... Uh, One of the issues with fees, of course, is a lot of times these fees go towards, like, sports tickets, career services, tutoring, maintenance, etc. But, um, I'm sure with some creative budgeting and some hard thinking, most schools could figure out a way to make that happen and decrease your fees a little bit. Um, Let's see, there like, big ones, probably, like, additional expenses. One of the biggest issues is room and board, actually, is usually about half the cost of attending college. Um, And one of the biggest issues with that is it's in listed in the cost of attendance breakdown that you see on most university websites that's a requirement by the Department of Education to break those costs into sections so actually so the Department of Education can determine how big of a loan you can take out so universities have these really mixed incentives on should you overestimate your cost of attendance or should you underestimate your cost of attendance like as far as room and board goes especially because it is a really big expense but depending on where people live, you know how close you are to the university, like which neighborhoods you're in, there's a lot of differences on what the average room and board cost could end up being. Um, it's useful for universities to probably underestimate that in order to attract more students If your overall cost of attendance looks significantly lower than a similar university then most students are want, going to want to go to that. Uh, cheaper school overall if it's just between those factors but that will severely limit the (coughs) amount of money they can take out in loans so if they can't find that lower or rent payment and they're stuck in like the nicer neighborhood that costs a lot then you know they won't necessarily be able to make up the loan money to make all of those payments and uh, at the same time overestimating will guarantee that your students will be able to take out the appropriate amount of loans but it also encourages higher borrowing Mm -hmm. because they have that option so schools are kind of faced with this okay do we overestimate and maybe have students taking out more debt than they really need or do we underestimate and maybe have them falling short on the money that they need every year so uh, at very least like standardizing how those costs are calculated would be a good idea there's currently no standard way of calculating room and board costs um, it's basically, it needs to be on the list of fees but or the list of costs in the cost of attendance, but you can figure out whatever method you want to determine it. So some people survey students, some people look at you know just housing prices in the area, but there's no set way of doing it and it can be very expensive to find out that information. So some sort of formula for figuring that out would probably be really useful, just a standard to make sure people aren't vastly over or under, underestimating these costs.
0: That's pretty comprehensive there. Yeah. Yeah, different things. Um, yeah, you got a, a I number of <laughs> some sections too, so you can read those later. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is good. I mean I, I think what is nice about this is it gives us some administrative tactics to try that are actually maybe fairly easy to implement if uh, if they if they wanted to be implemented. And then some of these more structural factors that are leading to the demand, which is, I know something we talked about as y'all are moving along on the project is how to how to issue how to deal with these issues of demand. The education can play a, a big role in it, but there's there's a lot of factors here going towards the demand for these student loans. Okay, so this is a lot. I think. Um, yeah. Is there anything that? uh kind of pulling all this together i know you you have a conclusion in your um your report but what's some kind of broad takeaway that we could leave the listeners with um people need education education's important it's expensive um and they're also ending up with a lot of of student loans um So one of the things that I take away from this is that students need to be really careful thinking about the amount they take out. As I've joked with you all in class, I did not do that, and I'm paying some of the consequences for that. And so I think one real is just making this a salient issue for students to try to get the extra information that they need. But it seems like there's all kinds of administrative things that we could do from better training, to the ways in which we treat the repayment programs and the way we administer those to thinking about the fee versus tuition structure. Um, So in some ways I'm a little optimistic on, on the ability to fix this if we wanted to, it's a little different than some of our other challenges that I've been talking with your classmates about that seem to have no solution or solutions that are just so, far-fetched or outrageous that we don't have any confidence in them but some of these are actually pretty simple to implement if we could uh, convince the decision makers to implement them Uh, there's some weird incentives maybe to not deal with these in a nuanced way and some perverse incentives maybe even um, in with the uh, current secretary of education that we mentioned earlier but the actual solutions aren't Ridiculous! They're not kind of outrageous to try to implement some of them, and so it's nice to have a little bit of a of a hopeful report here because I've done several in a row where it didn't feel like there was a lot of hope. Um, anything you want to leave the the listeners with, or leave me with that you think is important or useful?
5: I would just say, yeah, if we're going to continue to promote higher education to the extent that we have with like everything from like K through twelve and like media and all that pushing people towards college, it really needs to be accessible and affordable and equitable uh, for everyone to have these, like, kind of... I guess college is sort of the next American dream, is, you know, anyone can get into college, get a good education, and do something amazing. So that still needs to be affordable and not burden you with massive amounts of debt that rival, like, mansions in the Hamptons or something.
0: And definitely, I mean, at a minimum... Minimizing predatory practices. Mm-hmm, for sure,
5: yeah. We didn't even cover private loans, and that's a whole other
0: problem. Yeah, uh, which a lot of people—it's not the—it's not the largest uh, mm-hmm. player in the room, but this is still a large amount of people that are uh, interacting rates in this way. Are too, so. What's yeah. that? And the rates are higher. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is concerning. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, thanks for doing research on this. Um, it's nice to see some pragmatic solutions that. I could be hopeful for um, and um, yeah hopefully this is something that we do a better job of tackling in the future as a society all right thank you